Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. As you might have picked up from our worship, we're going through the book of Psalms, and each week uh, we are having the musicians bring to us a new setting of the psalm they've written, uh, the poetry, uh, paraphrasing the psalm, and then written music. And so you heard the first public uh, singing of Psalm 16, because we are, in fact, this week on Psalm 16. And so I preach every week, and they bring us a new song every week, and uh, I very much uh, appreciate their work and uh, feel strengthened by it every single week that we have musicians who do not follow the congregation but lead us. And so this morning we come to Psalm 16, as I said, and uh, let's hear the Word of God as it's given to us in Psalm 16, which is eternally true as all God's Word is. A mictum of David. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good besides you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. This is the word of the Lord. Now let's start at the very beginning, which is the heading over the psalm. It says, a mictum of David. So what in the world is a mictum? Well, one clue what it isn't is the fact that it's transliterated from the Hebrew. So they just took the sound of the Hebrew and they, they made it English. And so a mictum is a mictum, right? It's not a victim, it's a mictum. That was a joke. So what is a mictum? We don't know. We have no clue. Uh, some think that it's the name of a tune that everybody knew. Some think it is the word gold. And so <coughs> the psalm is, there. I don't know, somewhere around five psalms that have this label at the top. And so they're said to be gold psalms, but if you compare them to other psalms, they don't really stand out as being particularly golden. Um, some think that it's related to a word that means cut, and so it refers to David writing it. David cut this psalm, he wrote it, and so it's just a writing of David. So that's the end of the label. We don't really know anything except that it is written by David, and it's a mictum, whatever that means. Now, another thing to note about this psalm, before we get into looking at the verse by verse, is that this psalm is quoted uh, twice in the book of Acts in such a way that indicates that this psalm has special reference to Jesus. And so it is what is called a messianic psalm. It points forward to the coming one, to the Messiah. Where do we see this? Well, we see it from the mouth first of the apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost in his sermon, and then second from the mouth of the apostle Paul later in the book of Acts. First, in the Sermon on the Mount, I mean, in the uh, Sermon on the Day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, as as the apostle, <coughs> excuse me, as the apostle Peter comes to the end, he says this, verse twenty-five of chapter two. For David says of him, so it's Peter speaking about David speaking about Jesus. 
So Peter says, For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now, if you look in your Bibles there, you'll see that it's in all caps. That is sort of arbitrary at times, but it's the way the translators indicate it to us that we're dealing with a quotation from the Old Testament. Then, Peter stops quoting this psalm, and he says this. He says, brethren, he's speaking to the Jews there in Jerusalem, brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. So what he's doing is he's saying, okay, this is what David wrote in the psalm, but David died. David's in the tomb. In other words, David's, David's been reduced to decay. All right? And so because he was a prophet, speaking of David, so David was a prophet because he was a prophet, and he knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne. So God had indicated to David that one of his descendants would be on the throne. He, speaking of David, looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor to his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus, and now we're coming to the end of the sermon. David wasn't talking about himself. David knew the promise. David was a prophet. David was talking about the one that would be raised from the dead. And now listen to how the sermon ends. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses, therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit... He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, people, we don't know the Bible. None of us know the Bible. None of us know the Bible. Partly this is because we live in a, in a, in a culture of uh, writing and books and everything that's printed is cheap. But even so, we don't study the Bible the way we should. And so you put yourself back under this sermon and you try to imagine hearing the Apostle Peter speaking of David writing this psalm. And he's just quoting the psalm. Everybody there would have known exactly what the quotations were. And Peter brings the sermon to an end saying what? Saying that when David said these things, he was speaking of Jesus Christ. He was prophesying that Jesus would come and that God would raise him from the dead. Now, put yourself in the shoes of everybody listening. Here are all these people in Jerusalem, and Jesus has just been crucified at the crossroads outside the gate. The whole nation has been just completely at a fever pitch. And they've been at a fever pitch because Jesus has been raising people from the dead. And the Jewish religious leaders hated his guts. And so they peeled off one of his disciples, and that disciple betrayed him with a kiss. And then there was a sham trial, and they mocked him, they beat him, they scorned him. And then the people, the Jews, joined their religious leaders in crying out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Crucify him! And it's just a few days later. And he died. And here Peter is preaching to them, and he says to them, This is not about David, this psalm, and they know the psalm. But rather, the Lord said to my Lord, now Lord has authority. Something we can't conceive of today. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now listen, you know your religious leaders just killed him, just crucified him. It was a sham trial. You know everybody mocked him, spit on him, everything. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Do you feel this? Do you feel it? Your hair at this point is standing up on the back of your neck. Do you understand? 
This is not our version of evangelization today. <laughs> and we can't even conceive it. Imagine Billy Graham saying things like this. It's just absurd. This Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. And then he ends with this. Peter, therefore, he's gone all through the psalm. He said, this psalm has to do with Jesus. And then he says, therefore, let all the house of Israel, and it's you, it's God's people, let all the Christians in blooming, let every Christian in the United, let every Christian, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, and then, of course, the phrase that nobody would ever use in evangelization today, right? And what's the phrase? M dash, this Jesus whom you crucified. And that's how this psalm is used. For the first evangelistic, truly evangelistic message of the Christian church. And it leaves the people trembling. Because they realize that when David wrote this, he was speaking of Jesus and that God didn't abandon him to decay. But God has raised him and has seated him and is now making his enemies footstools. And you're the enemies because you just crucified him. And so God is in the process of making you the footstool of Christ the Messiah. That's how David uses this psalm. All right? And it's weird, because what we'd want to do with the psalms is we want, always want to make the psalms into personal sort of meditations, like, you know, morning and evening with Spurgeon, or Heinz teeth for high faces, or whatever that thing is. You know, we always want to, like, turn everything into, like, gospel sort of sweetheart things for us. And so here we have a psalm that's pretty good at that, you know. Honestly, this psalm would serve well for us just to have sort of warm feelings about God and spirituality. And yet, what we have here is the double whammy principle of scripture interpretation. It's a hermeneutical principle. There are books on it if you want to go read it. It's a joke. I call it the double whammy. And that's when you have the New Testament under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit interpreting an Old Testament text. If you were to wonder what the meaning of Psalm 16 is, you go to the New Testament, and the New Testament, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells you what the Old Testament means. The Apostle Peter, when he is preaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath in the city of Antioch, he quotes this psalm, and he says, Therefore, he also says in another psalm, You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And that's the same quotation of Psalm 16. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. The Bible is so contrary to our sensibilities. You know what it means when it says he underwent decay. He rotted. He decayed. It's so interesting today how resistant all of us are to letting our bodies decay. We all want to be cremated. By God, I'm going to take my body in my hand and I'm going to use up unbelievable amounts of carbon to reduce my body to ashes and I will never decay. And David was so humble. David was buried. Jesus was humble too. He was buried in the grave of a rich man. But God vindicated his son. And he has lifted him high, and he's given him a name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's how God uses this psalm. David was a prophet, and David saw the glory of Jesus Christ. So we read this psalm in that light, and we understand it in that light. Verse 1, preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. And immediately we see how true this is of Jesus. Jesus was constantly depending on God to rescue him. Why? Well, because unlike us, Jesus had enemies. 
Jesus had to trust something, someone outside of himself, because why? Well, the Son of Man had no place to lay his head. And he was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. This is true of David. It's true of our Lord Jesus Christ. Preserve, save, protect. One of the meanings of this word in the Old Testament, sometimes it's translated keep, or uh, another word that's used for this is... um, I'm forgetting what the word, wait a second, confine. Yeah, that's the one I wanted, confine. And I thought, it, I thought, that, was, I thought that was interesting. Confine me, oh God. We sure don't like to be confined, right? We want to be masters of our own destiny. And so why would preserve, protect, guard, save, and confine be used in a parallel construction? Well, It's because a shepherd keeps his sheep, right? And so to be protected is to be kept, is to be confined. And so at night when the greatest danger comes to a flock, what do you do? You bring them in and you confine them, the better to guard them. And do you realize that that's what the law of God is? Do you realize that's what the church is? Do you realize that that's what preachers and elders and older Titus two women are? They are the precious souls and the precious laws that God has sent to confine us. And when we submit to being confined by the ordinances and, and the officers and the laws that God has given us, that is where there is protection and safety. So for God to confine us is for God to save us. All right. Preserve me, O God, for, so this is the purpose clause, I take refuge in you. Now, don't make the mistake of thinking that this is foxhole religion. Don't make the mistake of thinking that this is only something that's done when we're, you know, for instance, if David was at the back of the cave and Saul was outside with his thousands and they were all desperate to kill David, and all of a sudden David said, preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. That's not what it is at all. The verb indicates past, present, and future, habitual. I take refuge in you. We know this is true of David. We know that David always took refuge in God. It was not foxhole religion. David was a real man. And so he took refuge in God. He was faithful and manly and strong enough to take refuge in God. Have you ever noticed how the more weak and pathetic you are, the less refuge you take in God? And the less refuge you take in God, the more pathetic you become. Have you ever noticed that about yourself? (laughs) Speaking only for myself. It is his habit. And this was also true of Jesus. Jesus took refuge in God. How do we know this? Well, it's often true that the way we know ourselves best is to listen to our enemies. And when we listen to our enemies, we find out what's true of us. And so if you listen to Jesus' enemies, you know that Jesus took refuge in God. How do you know? Well, you remember at the end of his life, he's up hanging on the cross naked, at the crossroads outside the gate. He's dying. He's surrounded by, he's got two thieves on either side of him, and he's got all the Jewish religious leaders in front of him, and they're mocking him. I've always felt that this is one of the most what would I say, that one of the most intense uh, statements in all of Scripture. Because we don't like to think of anybody as being so evil as to mock the, the precious Lamb of God as he pours his lifeblood out on the cross. 
It's inconceivable that people could be that wicked. It's inconceivable that I could be that wicked. And yet, Scripture tells us the truth. It doesn't flatter us. And so we read in Matthew 27, it says, as Jesus hung there, it says, in the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. And then listen to this, direct quote from Psalm 16. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. And then this little detail, verse 44, the robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. Jesus trusted in his father. We know it because his enemies mocked him for it. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good besides you. Now, it's hard for you to see what's going on here, but I, I want to try to show it to you. In verse 1, it says, O God, and that's El. You know the phrase El Shaddai? It's the sort of normal word for God in the Semitic world, in the ancient world. So it's the word that would be used by Canaanites and by Israelites just to refer to the concept of God. It's not a personal name, it's just God, all right? So it says, preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you, I said to the Lord. Then David is getting much more specific because Lord in upper caps, remember, always means Yahweh or Jehovah. And that's the personal name that God has given to the children of Israel to name him by and to pray to him by. So, preserve me, O El, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Yahweh, I said to the Lord, I said to our God, you are my Lord. So what is Lord there that's not in upper caps? That's Adonai. So El, Yahweh, Adonai. And so, David says something like this. God... Israel's God is David's Lord. God, Israel's God, is David's Lord. Now, what does it mean to be a Lord? Again, we have no clue as Americans, because what we know is the whole purpose of being an American is never to be under any authority whatsoever for any reason. And so somebody says Lord, and we think Taylor, you know? Somebody says Lord, and we, 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 we think you know, are they talking about Great Britain? Are they talking about a thousand years ago? We have no concept of what it is for David to name Yahweh his Lord, his Adonai, his Lord. But what he's saying is that God is his master. His master. I said to Yahweh, you are my master, you are my Lord, I have no good besides you. So it's getting very personal here. I have no good besides you. Now, what does it mean there, I have no good besides you? What we think it means is where David says in a later Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you, and besides you I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And so when he says here, I have no good besides you, we think that David doesn't desire anything good except God, but that's not what it's saying. What it's saying is that I don't bring any good and lay it in your presence. I don't contribute anything to your dignity or to your glory. What it's saying is I have nothing to give you. That's what it's saying. I have nothing to contribute to your majesty. Nothing. You are self-reliant. You are self-authenticating. You are, you are glorious, and you don't need anything from me. God is self-sufficient. And next to him, beside him, we have no goodness. Nothing. 
Any religion that ever teaches you that God lacks something that you can contribute is a false religion. Do you, do you understand this? It's flattery, and it's not true. Verse 3, as for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. A very sweet statement. David takes delight in those who belong to God. He calls them the saints. Saint means holy ones. And he delights in them. 1 John 4, 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. So let us, beloved, love one another. So part of David's plea to God is that he's a lover of the people of God. You know that I have often said and it's not original, it's something I heard somebody say about 10 years ago, and I thought, that's absolutely true. They said, and I think it was a pastor somewhere, they said that in their lifetime, nothing was as clear a predictor of the godliness of an individual than their constant, long-term presence and commitment to a particular church and to the people of God there. Okay? And I heard that, and I thought, it sounds boring. It sounds like the kind of thing that people would say all the time. I'd never heard it before, and so I began to check it against the people I've known through the decades. And I thought, you know, that is absolutely true. Why? Well, I think that what David is saying here, let's hear it again. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. Do you know what? One of the surest marks of the condition of your heart is how much you love the people of God. So the obvious question is, how much do you love the people of God? And you know something? If you're a part of this church and you ask me, I can tell you. Because it's obvious. It really is obvious. So if you were to ask me, or you were to ask my wife, or you were to ask the other elders and their wives, or the other pastors, the deacons, the tightest two women, you were to ask us, do I love the church? What would we say? Now, this is going to apply to some of you and not to others. But that's the nature of teaching, is sometimes it hits some of you, sometimes it doesn't hit some of you. There's a great um, competitor for the church alive in America today. But it's always in the church, it's not outside. Remember, all these psalms are written to the church, and not written to pagans. You always have to remember that about the psalms. And there's a great competitor for love of the church and the people of God in the church. And what is the competitor? Well, the competitor is the family. We're thinking we're being really pious and looking at the condition of the world that doesn't respect vows, that doesn't bother getting married, that doesn't bother having husbands and wives, that doesn't even believe in manhood and womanhood. And we go, well, we're not like that. We believe that men are men and women are women. And we believe in marriage. And we believe in having babies. And we believe in raising the babies to be men and women and to get married and to have babies. And doesn't it sound good? I mean, who can object to that? I mean, it, we live in this wonderful day when... To be a Christian and to be committed to family values are one and the same. Right? So yesterday I'm talking to this guy, and it's been a bad year for him. And don't worry, none of you know him. The first service, somebody came out in the door and said to me, by the way, you should be a little more general about what you say about this guy, because within 30 seconds I knew who you were talking about. And I looked at him and I said, 
what? And he said, and he said a name, and I said, dude, I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, really? So that's not who it was? I said, no, that's not who it was. All right, so if you think you know who I'm talking about, you don't, because none of you know him. Well, one person does, my wife. So this guy has just lived through Alexander and the terrible, no good, very bad day. But it's been a year. In fact, it's been over a year. It's been awful. So he wanted to talk, so we talked. And he told me that he'd found a woman that he liked. And he was smitten. And he said that he needed some relationship counseling. And, you know, I I knew it had to be fairly recent. And so I said, okay, well, uh, let's talk. We got on the phone. We talked yesterday. And he began to describe to me uh, why he needed counseling. He told me that this woman was uh, very pretty. I was happy to hear that. I, I wanted him to acknowledge that this was partly what was causing him to be attracted. You know, I like guys to be integrated with themselves enough to know that Scripture constantly talks about the appearance of people and women's beauty, and there's nothing wrong with that. You know, I like a guy that admits that he's attracted to beauty. It feels good, you know. And then he said that he had gotten to know this woman at his church, that the family had started coming to the church. And then he said the thing that made me tremble. He said that they were homeschoolers. Now, a lot of people in our church homeschool, those of you that are visitors, and some of my best friends are homeschoolers. Okay? But at that moment, I could have put the phone down on my desk and written the script out, and I would have gotten it almost completely right. But I listened and listened and listened. And of course, you know, what happened was... He looked at the daughter. He thought she was beautiful, and he was interested in getting to know her. So the mother invited him over to their house, and he began to spend time at the house. And he told me several times what a wonderful Christian family this was. Now, a couple of years ago, a guy came in our church, and I had not gotten to know him yet, but every time somebody told me about him, they said, he's brilliant. And I finally went to Brandon Chassie, and I said, Brandon, why are you telling everybody to tell me how brilliant you are? (laughs) You know, we all tell people what to say about us, right? Everybody, are you going to cop to that? All of us hear other people repeating about us precisely what is true. And so after a couple of times of him telling me what a wonderful Christian family this is, I said to him, you know, enough with this wonderful Christian family. Would you stop parroting the mother's words? Because the more he talked, the more unwonderful it sounded to me. So she had him over, and he learned what a wonderful mother she was with a wonderful family and a wonderful daughter. And then he made the mistake of asking if he could take this wonderful daughter to uh, his own family so that she could meet them. And that was his mistake. Because what she said to him is, do you believe in courtship? Well, those of you that don't know, courtship is a shibboleth in the conservative Christian church today. It's like, it's like something that says that you don't believe in trivializing the affections of young people and avoiding encumbrances emotionally that can do damage and not having recreational dating, you know. I mean, courtship is this... this this huge word that encompasses everything that's godly about how to find a wife. And this poor sucker was just wanting to get to know her a little bit better, and all of a sudden he ran into a buzz saw, and I mean this saw was buzzing. And he was directed to go to the mother, and the mother then proceeded to tell him that no, he could not take her daughter to meet his family nearby, 
until he signed on to the whole courtship thing, Now, I have not told you that the mother and her family had only recently shown up in the church and that recently she and her husband were divorced because her husband was oppressing the family. No accusation of physical abuse, just oppressing the family. And that they said they had left their prior church because their prior church hadn't been understanding and supportive. Now, why am I talking about this with Psalm 16? No clue, right? Listen to this. This is what Psalm 16 says. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. It is not to be delighted in the church, to be delighted in yourself as a mother and in your children. Any mother who idolizes her children and her motherhood is a mother who destroys her family and her home because she is the queen. God is not the king. And I proceeded to warn this man that he better watch it. Because what he was really going to have to do was bust this, this young woman. And when I say young, I'm not going to tell you how old. But old enough that it was mind-boggling that she had never been on a date and never had a man interested in her. Now, how do you get to be a woman in the springtime of life in a Reformed church and have a wonderful Christian family? And have no man anywhere interested in marrying you at the age of blankety blank. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not in the second decade. It's well into the third decade. How does this happen? Well, here's how it happens. Some of you know Al Parker. You know Al Parker? Al Parker's the one that's largely responsible for getting bald eagles reestablished in this part of the country. And Al used to catch hawks, and he used to catch them as little, uh, little, little chicklets or hawklets or whatever you call them, right? <laughs> and he used to train them, and he would go falconing with them. And I would have the privilege sometimes of going falconing with And what do you do when you go falconing with a falconer? All you're good for is beating the bushes. And literally, you take a long stick and you walk through the woods beating the bushes. And at some point, if you're lucky, a rabbit will dash out of a bush and that hawk is circling and he's come off his, uh, his, his, his leather arm piece. And that hawk goes, whop! And it catches that rabbit. And immediately, Al takes off running. And when he gets to the, uh, to the rabbit and the hawk holding it, He has in his hip pocket a bunch of little uh, chicklets, chickens, chicklets. And he takes one out and throws it to the hawk. The hawk drops the rabbit, and the the hawk eats the chicklet. Okay, you all happy? (laughs) It was fascinating to watch Al do this stuff. And one time I was talking to Al, and Al told me that he'd had a particularly bad time hunting with his hawk. What had happened? Well... This particular time, he could not get the hawk to let go of the rabbit. And so what did the hawk do? The hawk got mad at him. You know what the hawk did? The hawk took his talons and put them right through the palm of Al's hand. And I said, what did you do, Al? And he said, well, I couldn't pull it away. Why? Well, because God has designed the hawk in such a way that if you try to pull away, you only tighten its grip on you because it's hooked. And so I said, so what did you do, Al? And he said, I punched the hawk in the head. (laughs) And so that's what I told my friend yesterday. He needed to do that homeschooling mother. (laughs) Not literally.
This is serious stuff. This is very serious stuff. We are not family values. We are not conservatives. We are not Republicans. We don't focus on the family. We are Christians. And the minute our children forsake our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the head of our home, they are no longer a part of our family. Do you understand me? And our families don't exist to show the glory of their mother. We will not allow that. Because only God is God. And we either love the household of faith or we love ourselves. That's really what it comes down to. And we must not allow our wives, our mothers, our fathers, because sometimes it's the dad that creates a call to worship of himself in his home. And we don't do that. The church is the majestic ones. The church is the household of faith. And we don't displace the church with Christian schooling, homeschooling, classical schooling. We don't displace it with infant baptism. We don't think that because our children are baptized, they're part of the household of faith because not all Israel is Israel. We love the church. We love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we know who loves Christ because when we love them, they're humble. When we love Christians, they confess their sins to us. They don't confess their greatness to us. Christians are known because we confess our sins. And that's why we love them, because we're safe with them. Can you imagine being safe with either of our presidential candidates? You know... Donald Trump has outside of his apartment a, you know, a yellow sign that says, safe place. Oh, oh, oh. Everybody that walks in his presence knows what they're supposed to do. Right? You imagine confessing your sins to Donald Trump and having him love you because you're a majestic one? Come on, people. Forget about the election. Forget about it. We love the church. We have no mistaken notion that if we can just get a Christian vice president in Michael Pence, oh my goodness. You know, the, you know what uh, P.T. Barnum said. He said, no one ever went bankrupt underestimating the average intelligence of the American people. <laughs> Come on, people. God is our glory. He's our Father. And His children are the majestic ones. And they're the ones that we love. And it's terribly tragic when our children don't walk with God, but we must never replace the church of Jesus Christ with our family relations. Remember a number of years ago, we had a godly woman in this church whose husband was poisoning her against Jesus Christ. But of course, he was in the church, and so he didn't say to them, uh, to his wife and children, well, I'm going to poison you against Jesus Christ. It was always against the elders. And why was he against the elders? Well, not because the elders didn't love him, but precisely because they did, because they were calling him to repent of his sexual sin. And so he hated them. And so you could see him working to alienate his wife against the church. And he was getting ready to pull her out of the church along with his children. And I remember watching that wife and just being inspired by her godliness. And, you know, I, I wanted to try to act as if this wasn't what was going on and keep the marriage together because I believe in family values. And aren't pastors supposed to keep marriages together? And we don't believe in divorce and all this. And, and this guy was just 
alienating his wife and children, and she would have none of it. She had much more strength than I did, and I kept watching her. And at first, I was a little uptight, you know, because it seemed like she had kind of a cavalier attitude towards her husband. She knew that her husband was trying to lead her children from God. She was more interested in defending the elders than I was. And finally, it hit me that this woman was godly. And then I remembered what Jesus said. Jesus said that if you're going to follow him, you must, you must hate your father, your mother, your brother, your sister, your son, your daughter. He will brook no competitors. And all of a sudden, I saw what he meant. I saw this woman was honoring him. She was loving Jesus, and she was loving the church. And so I got up on Sunday morning. And I was filled with this, and I told the congregation, I said, you know, there are times where God takes precedence over our marriages. Well, afterwards, Stephen Baker was a little upset with me because I had said, and that includes husbands and wives, and Stephen, I don't know if you know this, if you don't go to church here, but Stephen knows the Bible better than anybody else in the church. And I'm always learning things about the Bible from Stephen. So that week when Stephen came to me and he said, well, I'm, I'm not sure it says husband-wife, I was like, oh, no, I misled the congregation. So we went to the Bible, and guess what? It says husband-wife. It's the only time I've ever been right. <laughs> okay. And then this last week I was reading in Deuteronomy. And you know that if the Bible was released today by a major evangelical publisher, it would sell no copies. None. None. And in Deuteronomy, it's talking about the importance of the people of God, the children of Israel, when they come into the land of Canaan, not turning aside to the gods of the Canaanites. Bunch of warnings about it. And then it says this. It says, look, if any of your family members try to seduce you away from God to the idols of the nation surrounding you, you are to kill them. And then it says, even if it's your family members, you are to kill them. And then it says, you are not to pity them. And then it says this. It says, even if it is your wife whom, what? Whom you cherish. Cherish. Listen, God is God. God is God. And he will not allow our children, our wife, our husband, our grandchildren. This morning you saw up there a bunch of my kids and grandchildren, and I love them. But let me tell you something. If one of my children turns his back on God, you have no question that that child will be out of our family. Do you understand me? And if any of our grandchildren turn their back on God, they're not our grandchildren anymore. Do you understand me? They're not. And you say, well, that's so, that's so, that's so cultish. And I say, no, it's religionish. It's Godish. It's Christian. And you say, well, does that mean that you're not going to allow them to come back for, like, Christmas? I say, no, 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 no. They'll be there at the table, and they will not be a part of my family. Do you understand me? There will be a wall that will be so clear that it just screams, not part of the family, when I hug them, when I kiss them. When they eat at the table, when the, when the songs and the hymns are sung, they may even sit there crying as the hymns of their childhood are sung, and they are not my family. And it's not my choice 
They're the ones that made the choice when they turned their backs on the majestic ones, the holy ones in whom is my delight. Don't you replace the church of Jesus Christ with your idol. Don't do it. Mothers, if you want to hold on to your children your whole life, the only way to do it is to hold on to God and to love his church and to love his people and to relegate your children to a distant second and third and fourth and tenth place. Because look, even if none of this is true scripturally, it's true psychologically. You show me a child whose mother has her talons through the palm of the child, through their heart, and that's a child that can't wait to get away from it. And I will tell those of you who are visitors, everybody here who lives here normally in this church knows this is true. This is what my father did to me. Okay? Everybody knows the story here. My dad did this. He said to me, Tim, you're no longer serving God. You may not stay in my home. And so listen, when Scripture here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this, as for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is my delight. Now, did I just read it right? I didn't read it right. It says, they in whom is all my delight. We love the church. When we see other Christians, the godly ones, we recognize meekness. We recognize humility. We recognize love and kindness. We recognize submission to authority. And David says this is his delight. And let me tell you, when Jesus was here on earth, he did not lose one of those the Father gave to him. And he said, in my Father's house are many mansions. And if it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus loves the church. He died for the church. He gave himself up for the church. So many people in America today call themselves Christians. And they look at the church as something they do on Sunday because they're religious people. And you look at them, and there's no love for the church. There's just none. There's no love for the minister. <laughs> I know this sounds egotistical, but... I, I think it's important to say, I gauge your love for the church by your thankfulness to me when you go out of church every Sunday. And it's not because I think, yikes. It's because God feeds you through the word from me. And so I want to see whether you're grateful for the ministry of the church to you. And this church has allowed me and other men to preach to you. And so I watch you. If I'm not preaching, somebody else. I'll feel you out about it. Wasn't that a wonderful Sunday? Wasn't that a wonderful sermon? And then I watch you. And I see how much you're grateful for a ministry of the Word that convicts you of sin. And if you're not grateful, I judge you. <laughs> And you say, well, there you go again, judging. And I say, yeah, that's what a shepherd does all the time. He judges everybody. Because those that the judgment comes up negative are the lost. He goes out to seek and save that which is lost. Do you understand? I mean, what do you think a shepherd thinks? If a mother's given birth and the little lamb lies on the ground and doesn't nurse or if the little lamb is diffident in their nursing, <laughs> you know, and wanders off. It's inconceivable. Well, quite opposite from the church are those who are wicked. It says the sorrows 
of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. And remember what we say about the Psalms. We say that David is, and all the Psalms are this way, always there's an enemy, always there's an enemy, and always there's a division in the Psalms. We don't think of the Psalms this way, but I just read it to you. He gets done loving the church, and then he says, not the wicked. He says, you know something, I'm not going to drink the blood, and I'm not even going to name them. And you go, well, what's the blood? And we don't know for sure, but we think a couple of places in Scripture that wine is called the blood of grapes. And so it may well be, he's just simply saying, I'm not going to drink with them, I'm not going to name them. I'm going to have nothing to do with them. Then he says, the Lord is the portion of my inheritance. And so what you have to do is you have to see, you know, you have these movies where you see somebody going into prison, right? And they walk in, you know, the loved one's outside, the gate goes, bam, closed. This is what Scripture's always doing in Psalms. It's shutting the door between the godly and the wicked, okay? And so he loves the church, bam, the door shuts, he will have nothing to do with the wicked, and then bam, the door opens again, and he says, the Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup, you support my law, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places, indeed my heritage is beautiful for me. Ah! And people, it's true. And it's especially true when our children are deformed and die in the womb. We say, the lines for me have fallen in pleasant places. You say, you're a monster. And I say, no. We have a father who everything that comes to us from his hand is perfectly crafted to perfect us in holiness and to prepare us for heaven. And when we get to heaven, if we have ten miscarriages, every single one of those children is going to be there waiting for us. We live by faith. And so it's always our confession that the lines for us have fallen in pleasant places. We are not those who go around life talking about what victims they are and how we've been done wrong. Because it's God who's dunning us. And he don't do wrong. All things have work together for good according to God's plan with us, those who love him and are called according to his purpose, all things. So my heritage is beautiful to me. We are content. The Apostle Paul says, I've learned in every state to be content. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. And so David goes on and he says, God is the one that leads me. God counsels me. God guides me. And then he says, indeed, my mind instructs me. In other words, even at night, God gives me wisdom and leads me and guides me and counsels me. And I'll tell you that a lot of the most wonderful leadership of me and counsel and wisdom I've gotten from God, I've gotten at night. Dreams promptings, sleeplessness. And it's interesting, you know, if God counsels us, what happens? Well, we find out that every day in every way, the world is getting better and better for us, right? And so every time when God counsels us at night, it's just from victory to victory, right? And so this last week, I had just this wonderful counseling at night that just left me slain with my sin. It's early morning, I woke up, and I just had this incredible picture of my sin. And it was from God. It was areas of my life I've hardened my heart against God. And God counseled me in night. If God leads you in night, don't wait to the morning. Do what he tells you to do. Act. Today, while it is yet day, do not harden your hearts as Israel did.
I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. I will not be shaken. Not because I'm a macho dude, not because I pack heat. Not because I made a good choice in a husband. Not because my children all think I'm wonderful. But because I live in the presence of God and I won't be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. What is it for the glory to rejoice? Well, it can also be translated tongue. And so, my heart is glad, my tongue rejoices, and my flesh will dwell securely. This is holistic. Everything of me is integrated. And I'm secure and I'm joyful. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And right here, we know that the apostles have said this pertains to Jesus. But it also pertains to David. But it's not all true of David, because David did decay. And yet David was also confessing that he knew that God would rescue him from the grave. We're not pagans. We don't take our destiny in our hand and get cremated and, and have jokes. <laughs> have you noticed that? The people that cremate, it's always a bunch of jokes. You know, everybody tells jokes and how the dead person told jokes and everything's just laugh, 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 laugh. Right? No, no, no. Death is the final enemy and Christians are respectful of that enemy, but we know that that enemy has been defeated by Jesus. And so we trust that God will raise us from the dead because we know Scripture tells us that at the last trumpet, the dead in Christ will first be raised, and then those of us who remain behind will be caught up with them. And so we will be... Come on. What does it say? And so we will be with the Lord. So comfort one another with these words. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. And so listen. As always, with the word of God, we have our choice. We can choose pleasures forevermore, or we can choose the suffering of the wicked. And you know, you think about the suffering of sodomy, it's so obvious. What was Orlando about? It was the torment of sodomy. It's not our fault. It was a man who went to the club and who had liaisons. And he was tormented. And any of us that love homosexuals know this is true of their lives. Guess who else is in torment? Those who fornicate. Guess who else is in torment? Those who commit adultery. Guess who else is in torment? Those who steal. Guess what else is in torment? The little ones who are tossed between the courts in, in custody battles. Wickedness torments us, and the more we give ourselves to it, the more torment we have. We get STDs. And then we die without hope. And we can whistle in the dark all we want. But God has promised that his people cannot be shaken and that when we die, we won't be abandoned to the grave, but that we will be brought into his presence where there is exceeding joy forevermore. And so, are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? Do you love God? Do you love God's people, the church? It's a stupid question, but sin is stupid. And so let's give ourselves to God. Let's not be holding back, protecting our options. Let's not refuse to be guarded. 
And then if we stand in his presence and love him and his people, we won't be shaken. And in his presence is exceeding joy forevermore. Think of all our loved ones that are there now. Think of the joy in the presence of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the wonderful promises in Scripture for those who delight themselves in you. We pray, Father, that we will be content to repent and believe through our lifetime and to live being washed by the blood of Jesus Christ, your Son. Father, we do not hate him, but we love him. And we pray, Father, that you will make our homes places of faith, that you will keep them from idolatry, that we as fathers and mothers will confess our sins to our children so that they love you and worship you and not us. And we pray particularly, Father, for these homes represented here today, that you will be pleased that these children will grow up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and that they will come to the day where they say that for themselves that the saints are the majestic ones and in the saints is all their delight. We pray this in Jesus' name.